Good evening, Ben, and welcome to the Lodge Hope of Karachi, number 337, and our 81st lockdown lecture Zoom meeting. It's a great delight as ever to welcome you along here on a Tuesday evening for your, uh, if not daily, but your weekly advancement in Masonic education. Uh, Bern, it's been another beautiful day here in the Kingdom of Fife, and wherever you are, I hope the sun's been shining on you. Uh, as ever, can I remind you of the Grand Lodge of Scotland guidance on Zoom meetings. Please uh, keep your video running. If you do have bandwidth challenges, Bern, just please drop me a little note in the chat box and switch your video off. And please have your name showing so uh, we know who you are. That's very much appreciated. As ever, can I invite you to sign our virtual tile on the Facebook pages. It just gives us that little bit of... Uh, recording of who's here for posterity, Brian. Thank you so much. Well, Brian, uh, 81 meetings in, and uh, over, over the, the, the last 15 months or so, we, we've had Brian from all around the globe. Uh, but on this occasion, we, we have uh, Brother Christopher Earnshaw joining us this evening uh, from Japan where it is 3 a.m. in the morning. Uh, so a, a huge thank you to, to Brother Earnshaw for getting up, in which is exactly the middle of the night out there. Uh, Brother Earnshaw shared his uh, Masonic bio with me. He's a, the past Grand Historian of the Grand Lodge of Japan, past Master of the Research Lodge in the Grand Lodge of Japan. Uh, he's a 33rd degree Scottish Rite Freemason and he's past Chairman of the Education Committee. Uh, recipient of the Order of Merit for the Grand Lodge of Japan for educational activities and a past master of the Sinem Lodge, uh, Grand Lodge of Massachusetts. In his day job, he's a professor at the School of Social Sciences, Waseda University, Tokyo, uh, lecturing in PPE. And he's a former professor of Asian Studies at the Daitu Bunka University. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, Chris, but uh, hopefully uh, it's close to it. Uh, his interests uh, are writing, uh, the cello, dowsing and the tarot, and he's also written a variety of books, and I'll put the links to those books on our Facebook pages later on this evening, Brian. So without further ado, it gives me the greatest pleasure to welcome to the Lockdown Lecture Series, Worshipable Brother Christopher Earnshaw. The virtual floor is yours, sir. Chris, can you unmute yourself? Okay. Am I okay now? Yeah, that's yeah. it. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Worshipful Brother and Brethren all. Uh, it's my pleasure to have this short talk with you this evening. Um, if you have any questions, please keep them to the end and uh, please make a note so we can do things in order. Um, I would like just to introduce myself because uh, I belong to uh, lodges in four different constitutions in Japan. And uh, I belong to the Grand Lodge of England, the Grand Lodge of Scotland, Grand Lodge of Massachusetts, and the Grand Lodge of Japan. The reason that this is possible because the Grand Lodge of Japan was not established until 1957, so many Grand Lodges were operating in Japan before that date, and they're still operating here. Um, so as um, 
Watchful Brother mentioned, I teach PPE, if you're not familiar with that, it stands for Philosophy, Politics and Economics. Tonight I would like to talk about the possibility that uh, Freemasonry has a Chinese origin. And I will now share the screen with you. Uh, Can everybody see this okay? That's just coming up now, Chris. Okay. That's it there now. Oh, excellent. Thank you. So firstly, I'd just like to give you a bit of background uh, for the reason why I have this opinion. Uh, I studied classical Japanese and Chinese literature at the University of London, and I was particularly interested in the philosophy of Mencius, the Chinese uh, philosopher. Uh, In 2016, I was at a lecture on Chinese philosophy in Tokyo, when afterwards the Chinese lecturer uh, asked me to, here we go, uh, when the the Chinese lecturer invited me to visit a temple in Taiwan uh, to take part in a Taoist initiation. Uh, This only happens once a year and it is meant, it is an honor to be invited. At the initiation, I was very surprised because the initiation was nearly exactly the same as the first degree initiation in Freemasonry. Uh, So on my return, I started studying this. I was able to use the facilities at my university library. And after two years of research, things began to fall in place. So it resulted in me writing four books on what I believe to be the alchemical underpinning of the three degrees of Freemasonry, which includes a Chinese alchemical ritual. The books are called Spiritual Freemasonry. Uh, There's a link to that. That's me at the initiation. I'm the guy in the middle, if you didn't notice. And those are the books. As my teaching specialty is social science, so I look at Freemasonry with the same glasses. I studied the social history of the time around 1717 when the Premier Grand Lodge was founded, which was later to become the Grand Lodge of England. And it raised many questions about the early days of the craft. For example, given England's rigid class structure, why did three members of the gentry decide to rewrite the ritual of stonemasons, especially as they were not manual labourers? Why did they give eight years of their lives to this project and also decide to add a third degree? Uh, Lastly, why did the aristocracy and nobility of Europe join these three men in a room above a tavern uh, to study these new degrees? Uh, You may be familiar with this picture as it shows the master leaving. Uh, If I can get my remote control apps more. We are... Mm, where's the little thing? Spotlight. 
Spotlights. Is this it? Spotlight. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> this uh, hang, hanging on the on the here is the Rama and Grapes Tavern. <clears throat> so obviously these uh, the um, nobility were not going there to study morality because the nobility would have considered themselves to be moral, God-fearing men who did not need to listen to more lectures on morality. I believe England's relationship with China probably started around 1660 with the introduction of tea. Coffee had been imported starting in 1650 from Africa and Caribbean together with slavery. Then from 1660, tea and tea shops started to become popular. The tea was Chinese and not Indian as people would, uh, one would expect. The British East India Company <clears throat> then started a triangular trade taking opium grown in India to sell in China and receiving silver, tea and chinaware in return. The Bodleian Library at the University of Oxford bought its first Chinese book in 1603 though they did not understand the contents. From 1658, Jesuits in Paris began to introduce um, books about China, with the first being The First Decades of Chinese History by Martino Martini, in which he introduced a new way to calculate Chinese history, what they called Anno Huangdi, which was of interest as it allowed for comparison of Chinese history with the Bible. In 1678, the English architect and sinologist John Webb published The Antiquity of China, in which he claimed that Chinese was the original universal language a claim that was supported by Robert Hooke. This idea was that in ancient times there was one language that was spoken by everyone across the world before various countries were established. This was called the universal language. At this time it was popular for individuals to collect books about China and similarly in Germany Gottfried Leibniz was studying a Chinese book on divin divination, the I Ching. He believed that the I Ching was the common denominator that would bring various Christian factions together by emphasizing their similarities, what he called the reunion of the churches. There was a move in London to open up trade to China using the southern route that Vasco da Gama had discovered 200 years earlier. The British East India Company was intent on dominating the Far East market, though it was constantly challenged by the stronger Dutch East India Company. However, by the late 1600s, 
England was importing large quantities of silk, tea, chinaware, and furniture from China. To this end, a Chinese Mandarin visiting England helped the trade effort by editing a unique map of China. <clears throat> I believe that there are six major correlations that point towards a Chinese origin for Freemasonry. First, the visit of this high-ranking Chinese official to London. Second, a vogue for Chinese at the time. Also, the Gormagons, the writings of Jonathan's, Jonathan Swift, the Scots Master's Degree, and finally, number six, the correspondences with Taoism. The first correlation was that in 1687, when the Jesuit Philippe Couplet, on his way to Rome, took with him a Jesuit convert, Shen Fujong, a Chinese Mandarin from the southern Ming capital of Nanjing. It has been said that Shen was either the son of a doctor or a wealthy merchant. Either way, his family was one of distinction, as we can see by the way he dressed. It has been suggested that Shen also had a knowledge of Chinese medicine and, by extension, alchemy. It has been recorded that in a meeting with Robert Boyle, when Shen was asked about how many Chinese characters a person must learn, he replied that he himself was a master of between 10 and 12,000 of them, indicating a high education. Uh, in current China, uh, modern functional literacy is about 5,000 characters, and an advanced literacy is about 8,000 characters. Uh, so Shen's 14,000 characters is quite remarkable. Shen had also been educated in Latin, which made him ideal for the visit to Europe, because most educated people at that time understood Latin. Though Shen's ability in Latin was said to have been a little imperfect. Couplet and Shen first arrived in Paris in 1684, where Shen was received royally in France and attended a banquet with King Louis XIV. From Paris, Couplet and Shen arrived, uh, <coughs> uh, sorry, travelled to Rome, and where they arrived in 1650. Uh, 1685, meeting with Pope Innocent XI. The pair again returned to Paris, where Shen was asked to catalogue Chinese books in King Louis XIV's Royal Library. And while he was there, Shen also prepared a Latin translation of Confucius. In the summer of 1687, Shen travelled alone to London, on his way to Lisbon, where he intended to finish his training to become a priest. He was introduced to Thomas Hyde, a scholar of Hebrew at the University of Oxford and chief librarian of the Bodleian Library. 
uh, Hyde invited Shen to Oxford to also help catalogue their, uh, their collection of Chinese books, and he translated some of the books and the maps at the Bodleian Library. The two worked in the intermediate language of Latin, uh, with Hyde pr actually praising Shen's ability. According to letters we have between Shen and Hyde, we know what Shen worked on. And to begin with, Shen even had to show Hyde which direction to read Chinese characters. Hyde was particularly interested in Chinese board games, and Shen also explained the Chinese weights and measure system, as well as their cal calendrical system. As a trade with China was a major concern of the British East India Company, Shen also helped annotate a map of China that the Bodleian possessed, which had been made in the early 1600s, which was later called the Selden map, because an accurate map would have been a valuable commodity. From Hyde's letters to Shen, we can see that they also discussed the Yi Jing, as well as Chinese temples and Taoism. In May of that year, Shen had an audience with King James II, who then commissioned England's leading portrait painter, Godfrey Neller, to paint Shen's portrait, the, uh, the Chinese convert, the picture we saw previously which the king then kept in his bedroom. This is significant because kings normally kept paintings of their family or mistresses in their private quarters, so I believe that James regarded Shen very highly. The second correlation is the interest at the time in Chinese things, and only a few Europeans had ever visited China. For example, the French historian Jean-Baptiste Duhald drew the illustrations for his famous book on China just by interviewing Jesuits in Paris. So the limited knowledge of China just increased the mystery about its culture, and Chinese ideas were then popular among intellectuals who saw Chinese so a Chinese society as an ideal meritocracy. Around the 1700s, the classical style of Louis XIV furniture was replaced by a, a more ornamental style called Rococo, which was characterized by small details such as shells, leaves, flowers, um, uh, and even cherubs, I suppose. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and on the back of this, an exotic Chinese motif was introduced, which became known as chinoiserie, featuring dragons, strange birds, and fantastic uh, landscapes, as well as these interesting ar uh, architectural patterns. <clears throat> In England, the chinoiserie style was quickly adopted by architects in both interior designs and also for small pavilions and in garden layouts. 
An early adopter was Viscount Cobham, who had a garden pavilion built in Chinese style at his house in Stowe in 1738, which he called the Chinese House. The architect, Sir William Chambers, had visited China three times with the Swedish East India Company, so he understood Chinese architecture well. At the bequest of the Princess of Wales, he first built a House of Confucius in 1749, followed by a pagoda in 1762, both of them in the royal gardens at Kew. The House of Confucius fell into disrepair and was later demolished, but the pagoda still stands. A cartoon by George Cruikshank, done in 1816, shows courtiers had erected a scaffold to help Prince George get on his house when he was leaving the House of Confucius in Kew, which is in the background. And also we can see the pagoda. <clears throat> It also shows four Chinese servants. Uh, though this is now thought to be uh, to show the king's interest in Orientalism and not that he actually had Chinese servants. George's gouty feet can also be seen heavily bandaged. <clears throat> uh, George had a good appetite, both in quality and quantity, And at the time he became Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of England in 1792, he weighed about 22 stone, which is about 140 kilos and more than twice what I weigh. <laughs>、uh, he was often lampooned in the press and in cartoons. English aristocracy were early adopters of chinoiserie. As they wanted to be seen as leaders of fashion. In 1770, James Caulfield, first Earl of Charlemont, hired Chambers to design a pair of large dragons. <clears throat> here we are on the top of here. <clears throat>、uh, for his stately home in Merino House in Dublin. The interior of some rooms in Claydon House, owned by Ralph Verney, second Earl Verney, were redesigned in the chinoiserie style, of which it is said the Chinese room, one of the most extraordinary rooms in the house, if not in England. <clears throat> In 1761, King George III bought the Duke of Buckingham's townhouse to use as his Queen's Palace for his concert, sorry, consort, Queen Charlotte. The palace was enlarged, and many small reception rooms were furnished in the chinoiserie style. You can see Chinese pictures here.、Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, the Queen's Palace was later enlarged and renamed Buckingham Palace. We can see the difference in the colour of the stone from here. The old palace is here, and the new palace has been added on the front.、Um, <clears throat> 
Carlton House in Pall Mall was the residence of the Prince Regent, and renovations were done to the old building, helped by chambers, one of which was adding a Chinese-style drawing room. In 1792, the Prince Regent was to become the Grand Lodge of England's first Royal Grand Master, and, in, and later in 1820, King George IV. Since 1786, the Prince Regent had been under a financial cloud and was being investigated by Parliament for the extravagant amount of money spent on rebuilding Carlton House and also a summer villa by the sea, the Royal Pavilion, at Brighton in the south of England. The pavilion was loosely inspired by the Taj Mahal, and though not Chinese, the interior had many Chinese objects as well as stained glass, win stained glass windows of Chinese figures, one of which looks like the Taoist saint Guang Yu. George's interior designer, Frederick Crace, was not so concerned about cultural authenticity but rather wanted to make the pavilion interesting and oriental. The third correlation is that in 1725, the Premier Grand Lodge introduced what may be a Chinese third degree. Uh, the reason for calling it this is explained in detail in my books, but uh, it may be not um, appropriate in front of a mixed audience. This was soon followed by the Chinese order of the uh, Gormagons and their famous parades, where they parodied the Premier Grand Lodge, the Moderns. This is meant to be uh, de Sagulier, this is James Anderson, uh, I believe this person here is the Duke of Montague, and that person here is George Payne, but uh, they are not identified as such, but it, it seems to be correct. <clears throat> Nowadays people consider the Gormagons uh, to be a farce, invented by the fifth Grand Master, Philip, Duke of Wharton to embarrass the Premier Grand Lodge as he felt insulted by being summarily made to resign as Grand Master. The Gormagons are important for several reasons, not only that uh, it shows that there is a connection between Freemasons and an interest in China, uh, but secondly that there was opposition to Freemasonry at the time. In this etching by Hogarth, called The Mystery of Masonry, brought to light by Ye uh, Gormagons, drawn in 1724, there are four Chinese nobles. Uh, the Emperor, the Volgi, who is the Grand Master, this person here, uh, the Philosopher and a Mandarin, are leading a Masonic pro, uh, procession, suggesting that Hogarth wanted to show that the Freemasons were following Chinese sages. Uh, this is meant to be uh, Confucius. This is uh, these are two Mandarins. <clears throat> 
The fourth correlation is that around 1726, the Irish author Jonathan Swift published a letter titled A Letter from the Grand Mistress of the Female, Female Freemasons, which seems to be a sort of literary prank, but at the same time it raises many interesting questions. In it, Swift referred to Freemasonry and a Chinese connection, and I quote, Under the censure of the venerable Chinese Brackman, whose history of the rise, progress and decay of Freemasonry, writ in the Chinese tongue, is lately translated into a certain European language. By this, I think Swift meant Latin. This Chinese sage says, the greatest part of current Masons judge of the mysteries and use of that sacred art, just as a man perfectly illiterate judges of an excellent book. It is believed that Swift was not a Freemason, as his, in his writings he suggests that Masons be hanged on the gallows, but he was cognizant of many facts concerning Freemasonry. Uh, the letter uh, to the, uh, from the Grand Mistress of the Female Freemasons <clears throat> uh, refers to three degrees, so is post-1725, probably written around 1726 or 27, when Swift spent two years in London. Many details about Freemasonry in the letter are obviously incorrect, but Swift suggests that Freemasons' understanding of the mysteries was superficial, according to a Chinese sage who may also be a priest. So Swift may have been referring to the Chinese Mandarin, Shen Fuzhong. Swift's letter is interesting as it again shows that there was knowledge of a Chinese connection to Freemasonry and that around 1724 to 1727 uh, the craft was not held in high regard as it was being satirized in the press and in paintings. <clears throat> The fifth correlation is that the nascent appendant bodies of Freemasonry were also being influenced by the Orientalism vogue, with Chinese words being introduced into several degrees. For example, the Scots Master's Degree of 1730, the Irish Master Degree of 1740, uh, the Elu of the 15 and the senior architect uh, of 1760, uh, which was part of a seven degree ritual, where Sivi was said to mean bend the knee, Ki was Chinese for all rise, and Xin Chu was a password meaning the seat of the soul. This suggests that Chinese words were used in some Masonic rituals, uh, in, both in England and France, for over 50 years. I think we need a little bit of background on China here, so uh, there's a couple of uh, words about that. In 1683, uh, we saw the introduction of the brutal Qing government in the lands south of the Yangtze River. 
Though northern China had been invaded and conquered by the Manchus in 1644, <clears throat> it took another 40 years for the whole country to be subjugated. Then secret societies started around the 1650s to oppose this Qing government and protect the southern Ming emperor. Many brethren interested in martial arts will have heard of the, the Shaolin Monastery, where Shaolin Kung Fu was invented. The monks that died at the monastery were on their way to protect the southern Ming emperor. The fragmented groups of secret societies joined together under banners and blood oaths and became known as the Tian Di Hui, or Heaven and Earth Societies, eventually becoming a nationwide organization. The Tian Di Hui built uh, loyalty houses across the country, each run by three brothers. This is an artist's picture of what it may have looked like. Uh, this is the entrance, and the actual uh, loyalty house would have been inside here. <clears throat> this sign uh, reads Tian Di Hui. You have to read it from right to left, Heaven and Earth Society. And the flags here on both sides say, Down with the Qing and Restore the Ming. In 1662 we, uh, was the revival of the Shenzhen School of Taoism in the south of Nanjing, where the southern emperor was, after a gap of 130 years, which would have been well received at court, as it is said that the Chinese have Confucian skin, Buddhist bones, but a Taoist heart. I believe that there is a strong correspondence between the first degree and the Taoist initiation ceremony, which has been faithfully repeated in China since 200 BC. And many of the elements of a Freemason's lodge, such as the furniture, ornaments and movable jewels, all have similar Chinese lessons. In spite of this, many Masonic historians do not agree with a Chinese connection. This may be for jingoistic Victorian reasons, because speculative Freemasonry was conceived in England, specifically London. However, the Enlightenment was a time when the intelligentsia were open to new ideas as things Chinese were vogue at the time, it is not a leap of imagination to believe that the first three Grand Masters were also interested in China. One reason for dismissing a Chinese connection to Freemasonry may be <coughs> uh, the uh, a paper which was published in AQC, Ars Quattro Coronatorum, in 1889 by the Mason and Sinologist Chalana Alabaster, who was fluent in China, uh, Mandarin. He wrote an article for the Hong Kong Telegraph about Freemasonry in China. In, China. in the article, Alabaster recognized the similarity of the sworn brotherhood and mutual support of Freemasonry to that of the Tian De Hui, the Chinese secret societies, 
But he said that as there was no Solomon, Hiram, or Temple of Jerusalem, then there could be no connection between them. However, in Alabaster's paper, he added a tantalizing statement. I have found existing there, meaning secret societies, a mystic faith on which there seems some reason to believe our craft is founded. However, he did not fo uh, follow up on this statement, which, supply, which implies a connection to Taoism. Lastly, the Taoist ceremony of receiving the light is very similar to the first degree in Freemasonry. There are small differences, such as in Freemasonry, members do not wash their hands on entering the lodge as is done in Taoism. Instead, they wear white gloves, but for the same re reasons, to signify purity of heart and mind, and secondly, that they are entering a sanctif sanctified space. Since the 1660s, when tea was first introduced into England, the Chinese also produced special teacups for Westerners to use. They were the same shape as the porcelain cups used in China, but they had handles attached. In a similar way, I believe the Tao ceremony, as used in the first degree, was slightly adapted for foreigners, without an insistence on incense or kowtows. With the exception of the altar, Tao temples have very little ornamentation, and often they are not purpose-built. So unlike Christian churches, they do not face a certain direction. The reason being that the Tao is omitted from the Wu Qi, the void of all potential, and so transcends the five elements and eight directions. In reality, many Masonic lodges also do not actually face east, despite what is written in the ritual. Here I ought to add a, a short explanation about Tao. There are three major schools of Tao, a philosophical Tao, a religious magic Tao, and a shamanistic Tao. The Tao that comes to most people's minds is that of red temples, uh, with dragons and statues of fierce gods with long black beards. This is the religious magical Tao. However, what I'm referring to is the Shen Qian school of Taoism, which is a philosoph philosophical Taoism with none of the red paint, dragons or fierce gods. The Shen Qian based its teachings on the philosophers Confucius, Mencius and Lao Tzu and the temples are much simpler. Like a lodge, a temple is run by three officers, two commanders, and the light pointing and transmitting master, who can be thought of as guardians of the light. The three candles on the Taoist altar, <coughs> representing the limitless potential of the universe, called Wu Qi, the sun and the moon, are similar to the three lesser lights of Freemasonry, the sun, moon, and the worshipful master. In the same way that the master brings the light to the east in the to the candidate, uh, 
light in the east from sorry light from the east to the candidate the Tao master brings the light from the Wu Qi to the candidate like Freemasonry Tao secrets can only be transmitted and initiations done when these three candles are lit on the wall above the altar <coughs> uh, are the words in Chinese Ming Ming Shang Di meaning enlightened God similar to the G above the master of a lodge. Chen Chen Taoism is not a religion, but more like a philosophy of light, of life, just like Freemasonry. <clears throat> In my books, I've uh, summarized 26 correspondences between the Tao ritual and Freemasonry's first degree. Both the ritual and the design of the lodge, the two ashlars, the blazing star, all have correspondences with Taoism. The first book compares the Taoist initiation with the first degree initiation. I put his, and this is the this is the the Wu Qi, the special candle with the design on it. <clears throat> uh, the <clears throat> the second book, my second book, looks at Western alchemy and the second degree. The third book looks at the social concerns of the day, especially concerning Catholicism and a quest for immortality. And the last book analyzes the growth of appendant bodies, as well as the life-changing hidden teaching of the third degree. In summary, to answer the questions I asked at the beginning, I believe the reason three members of the gentry decided to rewrite the rituals of stonemasons was because they had found, uh, through uh, Shen and Thomas Hyde, a mystical practice to prove that immortality was a fact at a time when the validity of the soul and immortality were being challenged in society at large. They gave eight years of their lives to this project because rewriting the degrees to hide these secret teachings in a cipher was very involved work. They added the third degree because alchemy was a three-step process, both in Europe and in China. Lastly, the reason the aristocracy and nobility of Europe joined Anthony Sayer, George Payne, and John de Sagulier in a room above a, a tavern was not to study morality, but to learn the secrets of this Chinese mystical Taoism. The, the Swedish theologian and philosopher Emanuel Swedenborg was a mason, and he practiced these lessons, which he wrote about in detail in his book, The Heavenly Doctrine. Things, <clears throat> Things Chinese were in vogue at the time of the start of the Premier Grand Lodge in 1717. Chinese philosophy influenced intellectuals such as Hyde and Leibniz, and this was closely uh, followed closely by the Royal Society, which had been established in 1661. 
the Prince of Wales, Freemasonry's first royal grand master in 1792, was interested in Shinwazari as well as training, trading with China. After the introduction of the third degree in 1725, other rituals, such as the Scots Master degree, sprung up and incorporated Chinese words as both directions and passwords. When the disgraced Duke of Wharton, the second aristocratic Grand Master, plotted to bring down Freemasonry, he chose a Chinese-themed society, the Chinese Order of the Gormagons. Many wrote about the correspondences between the craft and Chinese secret societies, including Jonathan Swift and diplomats based in China. However, what they did not see was that it was Taoism that was the link between China and Freemasonry. I hope you, this short talk has piqued your interest in the subject, and thank you for your attention. <laughs> Worshipful brother, Professor Christopher Earnshaw, I think you have certainly piqued many of our realms' interest in what is a, a very uh, interesting take on the, the origins of our beloved craft. Uh, I, as you will know, uh, as Scottish Freemasons, we are, we are very proud of uh, our belief that it originated here in Scotland and uh, to hear a, another take on it and how you've connected those dots uh, certainly ha has uh, posed a, a lot of questions in my mind uh, this evening <laughs> and I'm sure it has for, for many of the brethren here. If I may add something, I believe Scotland's uh, uh, role in Freemasonry was on the operative side, not on the speculative side. And so in um, Edinburgh, the uh, early lodges that were meeting there uh, had many accepted members, probably uh, more than 60-70% of the membership was were accepted members and you had some uh, I forget their names um, but you had some uh, aristocrats, uh, particularly the master of the works who was a member of some of the lodges and I believe because the master of the works, and I forget his name, William Alexander, Shaw. Alexander something? We would have had Shaw, would have been one of them. Mm. Anyway, um, he had access to the king's royal purse, and um, so because he had access to the funds to build and repair buildings in Scotland, um, anybody who was associated with building would want to be his friend. And so um, when he joined this lodge, because he wanted to have better communication with the guild, the workers, um, he wanted to know them better, then every, everybody else followed him. I feel, I feel that's how things started. Anyway. Thank you. We do have some, <laughs> some comments and questions in the chat box for you, Chris. Uh, let me just uh, scroll back up uh, and uh, move that to the side slightly. Uh, first question uh, is 
it was given before the, the, the talk started, and uh, Brother Ron Mann asks, I know the talk is on Chinese Masons, but how are uh, Japanese Masons doing? So, uh, yes. how's your Freemasonry over there? So, <clears throat> we have uh, basically three types of Masons in Japan. <clears throat> we have uh, foreigners who live here, like myself, who are expats, I was working in the banking industry, and I stayed here. Uh, then we have Japanese nationals, and the third party are mili American military servicemen who are working. We have over 80, nearly 85 military bases in this small country, and um, I think it's, it's 100,000 U.S. servicemen working here, as well as three aircraft carriers because of the tension with North Korea and China <clears throat> and Taiwan, of course. Um, so we have this mixture of um, European, mainly Europeans like myself, who are interested in more occult part of Freemasonry. Uh, the Japanese really do not understand Freemasonry at any depth, and this has been a problem for us for a long time. Um, my books are presently being translated or completed to be translated into Japanese, which I finished last month. Uh, hopefully it'll be pub the book will be published in Japanese for the Japanese brethren at the end of the year. Um, that'll start the conversation among them, I hope. The third group of military masons, they're not allowed off their base very often, so they tend to keep to themselves. We have uh, lodges on the on the bases, or sometimes out close to the base, and um, so they are a kind of third group. Sometimes we meet, but not that so often. We have a, only about uh, two thousand uh, masons in Japan, and some fifteen lodges under the Grand Lodge of Japan. However, the Grand Lodge of Scotland has um, um, two lodges. Uh, and I'm a member of uh, uh, the, um, in Yokohama, Scottish Lodge in Yokohama. Uh, we don't have an English. Oh, we have sorry. We do have an English Grand Lodge. It's in Kobe, and there's some Philippine lodges and the Prince Hall lodges, and one Massachusetts lodge. So we have quite a lot of activity. Um, unfortunately, education doesn't rank very high among our groups. Um, we try with the, the research society, but um, yes, I, I feel we're not on the level of um, a country like America, Canada, or India, for example. F Japanese um, Grand Lodge came from the Philippines. Originally, there were Philippine lodges in Japan, which decided to get together, set up their own Grand Lodge. And so that history means that um, it's a fairly young history and uh, not that well informed, unfortunately. But we try. We do a lot of um, charitable work. Um, we are f surprisingly quite rich. Uh, at the end of the war, um, General MacArthur uh, together with some Freemasons, were able to buy uh, some land right in the center of Tokyo, where Tokyo Tower is, 
and um, in the years after following that, we have two high-rise buildings. I think they're both 50-story buildings from which we receive rental income. And with that rental income, we have built ourselves a beautiful uh, Grand Lodge, and we're able to do a lot of uh, charitable activities. However, on the other side, the Japanese population don't regard Freemasonry very highly. Um, that is due to the sensational writing of many journalists and people who want to sell a book quickly. Um, uh, so they write about, um, for example, Freemasonry is a Jewish um, idea to, to overtake the banking system of the world, starting with Japan or something nonsense like that. But there is suspicion. And um, if I mention I'm a Freemason to a Japanese person, often <laughs> their face will go white. <laughs> They'll be kind of startled. But... Um, we're working slowly to change this, <laughs> but uh, it's an uphill ba battle, if that, in a nutshell. <laughs> no, Chris, thank you very much, because I think that, that that further educates us all here uh, about uh, our two lodges, the other one being in Kobe uh, in Japan. Uh, Alan Keegan comments, fascinating stuff. Christopher, and thanks for doing this at what must be a very odd time for you. And yes, we all give your thanks for that. He goes on to say, I was anticipating a mention of Elias Ashmole. I recently finished the Haramic Legend and the Ashmolean Theory by W. Hextall. Does he feature in your books or studies? Uh, yes, he does, and unfortunately, not very highly. Um, <clears throat> uh, so, Ashmole was a collector. Uh, he was a publisher. Uh, he wasn't a writer. Well, yes, he did write some books, but uh, um, I don't know how active he was as a Freemason. Um, we do know that uh, he was one of the first Freemasons um, in England, and uh, we have anecdotes about him. Um, the uh, Ashmolean, uh, Ashmolean Museum at uh, Oxford University was donated by Ash Ashmole, but a lot of those um, items that were donated were actually stolen from his next-door neighbour, uh, a person called Tradescant. Um, Tradescant um, was a collector uh, a, real, a, a serious collector. He had his whole house was covered in things. The ceilings was also things attached to the ceilings. And um, Ashmole, uh, he he wanted that he wanted that collection, and he stole it uh, after Tradescant died. And Tradescant's wife uh, Hester. Hester Pook, interesting name, Hester Pook uh, died in mysterious circumstances. She drowned in her pond in her garden. And uh, the week after she died, uh, uh, Ashmole wrote in his diary that he went into her house and took all her paintings. <laughs> and, you know, he, was, he wasn't a very um, moralistic person. Um, I, because he died before the Premier Grand Lodge was established, uh, I think his his um, influence on the early Grand Masters was limited. 
Thank you. Uh, Ian Walk comments, what an interesting and thought-provoking presentation. Well done. Uh, even included themes seen in previous lectures in this series, yeah. Uh, one, one of our previous speakers, Chris, uh, brought in the, the subject of the Gormigans uh, a, a few months ago, so that, that was nice to see that come back round. Ian McIntosh, a fascinating and thought-provoking angle from the Chinese. Uh, Alan Turton, Chris, fascinating. Thank you so much. How much of the correlations are things that we share as humanity around the world? Yes, so I'm often asked this, but um, when, when you have uh, two things that are so similar, um, perhaps on two or three points, fine, this is something that perhaps people around the world who are thinking people, who are spiritual people, may come to... Uh, to the same conclusions, uh, maybe in Africa, the, the Hopi Indians, etc. But when you have 28 correlations that are all so close, I just do not see that this is coincidental. I think this was uh, thought about, and the, the Chinese ideas, for example, the Ashlers, um, the, the two ashlers fit so well with Chinese philosophy that it's. Um, I took a, a Chinese professor uh, to visit our Grand Lodge, and I showed him the things, and he was so surprised. He felt that you know he was like back in a Taoist temple. Yeah. It's just um, though it didn't. The colours were different, but the layout and everything else was exactly the same. He felt at home. Oh. <laughs> Uh, another interesting question from Dickon Sandbach. What is the history of the Gormagons before the Duke of Wharton made use of it when he tried to ridicule the Premier Grand Lodge? Did it originate in China or was it an invention, perhaps based on a little knowledge of China? Yes, I think it was the latter, and I give reasons for this in my book. Um, I believe the uh, Duke of Wharton invented the Gormagons um, <clears throat> because he made an announcement in the newspaper, one of the newspapers, that there was going to be a Chinese organization. Uh, they would not allow um, the uh, King George III or the Prince Regent to be members. He made a point about that. Um, it's to do with the <clears throat> Jacobite situation in, Eng in England at the time. And this is really important because the Premier Grand Lodge was very elitist and um, they tried to, first of all, get nobility to become the Grand Masters and they only let the best people in. The, the time there was a, a lot of, of uh, prejudice against Scots and Irish in London, and so the Scots and Irish then joined the Grand Lodge of the Ancients. Well, Grand Lodge of the Ancients wasn't established until 1751, so before that they were joining the St. John's Lodges. Um, <clears throat> so we had two of groups. We had the Scots, who tended to be Jacobites, of course, supporting um, uh, the, the old pretender, and uh, the Irish as well, who were Catholics, and they had their own organization. On the other side, the, the moderns and then the ancients. And it wasn't just um, differences in opinion the ritual was nearly the same, I believe. Um, there were some differences. For example, the 
the uh, ancients included the Royal Arch degree as their fourth degree. Um, <clears throat> and we can see from this that uh, it has a very religious uh, story to it, which changes the, the whole uh, meaning of the rituals of the ancients. The, 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 the moderns only had a three-degree ritual. It has no overt relig uh, religion in it. It has no chivalry no Templars, nothing like that. But the ancients had brought in this very glamorous and theatrical uh, Royal Arch degree, which, um, because everybody was Catholic, they enjoyed it very much. And so we had these, the Jacobites and the, um, the <laughs> I think Hanoverians is probably the other way to The Jacobites, there is a lot of talk about them uh, being a kind of um, uh, bastion for the reintroduction of the uh, king, it would have been then the King James III, to come to England uh, to take the throne, and these Jacobites in the Grand Lodge of the Ancients would be that support, supporting group uh, in England to help um, to take the throne. Of course, um, uh, James the Third wasn't he? Was uh, uh, James Stuart? Uh, he had tried to get support from the Vatican. He had tried to get support from King Louis the Fourteenth, uh, and also from the Spaniards. All these Catholic countries were trying to retake the Protestant England, and he wanted to sp to be the spear front of it with these. Um, Jacobite Freemasons in London as his supporters. And luckily for England, I suppose, <laughs> it didn't come about. And so um, <clears throat> the uh, story is, and we can see this um, uh, in the uh, English third degree, uh, because we are given the substitute for the uh, lost word. We're given two of them, uh, MHB and uh, <laughs> M MBN, MBN and MHB. The reason we have two of them, because one represents the, the, uh, the word password for the moderns and one for the ancients. And in 1813, when they joined uh, to become the United Grand Lodge of England, they both refused to give up their passwords, so we both have these two words. And one of them refers to the widows is, I believe, um, and I'm taking this from uh, the textbooks, but I, it's Gaelic for the widow's son. Uh, the widow's son would have been uh, James because he was the son of the um, his, his mother was a widow. So it was, again, a kind of uh, suggestion of the Jacobite origins of the Grand Lodge of the Ancients. And so this was a, a force at the time, and uh, it was quite difficult, I think, uh, to for the two Grand Lodges to join in 1813. It must have been quite difficult. <clears throat>
Does that answer your question? Sorry. I, I think that was a, a fantastic answer to that question. And the, the, the talk of the Jacobites uh, and the Jacobite Freemasonry. It's a lovely segment to our next uh, comment, which comes from uh, Brother Ian McIntosh, who uh, is our resident expert on Jacobean Freemasonry and has presented uh, at this lockdown lecture series over uh, the, the course of the last 15 months and, and his comment is quite a contemporary one comparatively to the Jacobites and it's about that Ian has a reference in December 1915 to a mm. Scottish brother who was shipwrecked during the war and was well looked after by the Bern of Lord Yokohama, number 1066 and their right worshipful master brother Taylor Yes, so uh, Ian also has a, a huge knowledge about uh, the war years in Freemasonry, particularly in the uh, yes. area, Chris. Uh, yes, um, sorry, this is my, my interest in Freemasonry is the years 1716 to 1750. Uh, my, my reason for this is I want to know why Freemasonry was set up. What was what was the objective? Why do people want to to bring? <clears throat> for example, um, we call it a peculiar system of morality, but there's nothing peculiar at all about it. It's it's based on uh, classical literature, Cicero and people like that. It also in introduces um, morality from the Bible. So, what is peculiar about that? Well, if they were talking about the Chinese morality, then I think peculiar would be an interesting word to use to describe that. Also, we call the, the, the master's chair the, the oriental chair. You know? Well, the oriental, that's the Far East, that's China. So, you know, all these small hints here and there. Um, <clears throat> anyway, please, next question. <laughs> hey, Sandy Thompson asks, are there any lodges in China? Uh, not in not in mainland what we call mainland China, but of course in Hong Kong we have uh, I think we have three grand lodges there: England, Scotland, and no, Ireland. No. Yes, and in Macau we have what do we have in Macau? Um, a brother a brother wrote to me from Macau just recently. I forgot. Um, and then in Taiwan we have the Grand Lodge of China in Taipei in China. <clears throat> So, yes, and the Grand Lodge of Taipei is in a similar situation to Japan. It's about 2,000 members, um, but they take things very seriously in China, a little bit more than we do here, I think. <clears throat> yeah. uh, brother John White comments, certainly thought-provoking, and thank you, Brother Chris, uh, to for, for all your Masonic-related information and speculation. Since we're all speculative, then why not I, speculate that all knowledge and light comes from the East? Why not? <laughs> uh, lovely comment there. Uh, uh, Laird Allen Maitland, a uh, very interesting food for thought. Uh, Alan, you'll not be able to sleep tonight for thinking that, going round and round in your mind. Uh, Martin Gunn, very interesting lecture. Thank you, Brother Christopher. I must go <coughs> take care, Bern. Uh, Ian Anderson, sorry, I'll have to leave. Fascinating discussion. Many thanks to Brother Earnshaw. Uh, Brother Earnshaw knows some history. Well, there's an accolade <laughs> for, for you, uh, Chris. Uh, can, fascinating talk. Thank you. Uh, Michael Hearn, three districts meet in Zetland Hall, Hong Kong. That's the ones you've, yeah. you've just mentioned. And 
Brother Chris, that comes to the end of the questions that we've got here this evening. And can I just reiterate the thanks uh, from the members of the Lodge Hope of Karachi and all our uh, guests, not just from Scotland, but from uh, all around the world. We've got Brian here from Canada, Bulgaria, Chile, uh, France, uh, England, Wales. Uh, so it's great that they've come here and you've given this insight and uh, new subject. And I'm sure, Brian, that we will continue the discussion on Facebook later on this evening uh, when I do get the, the chance to post some uh, links and comments up. But Chris, thank you once again, sir. Uh, it's very much You're appreciated. You're welcome. Yes. Well, I, I look forward to receiving the video. And um, uh, also, I'd like to join the uh, bring the attention of the brethren to on my website on YouTube. I have lots of short videos, about fifty or sixty of them, on various subjects, and only a couple of them about China. So. <laughs> Um, I, you know, f this is from some of the papers I wrote when I was running the research lodge. So if you're interested, please go. It's the site on YouTube is called Spiritual Freemasonry. I will be sharing that with the brand this evening, Chris. So uh, we will yep. certainly do that. Thank you. <laughs> Brethren, next week uh, we have got. Uh, a Scottish brother, uh, uh, brother Nabil Gandur. Uh, again, apologies for the pronunciation. Uh, brother Nabil is a Jordanian. He's from the Jordan Lodge, number 1339, Scottish Constitution. And he's going to introduce us to eight knowledge areas of Masonic education and what they've done out in the Middle East and a little bit of uh, the, the history of, of Freemasonry out there. Next week, the session will not be recorded, Brethren. Uh, so I encourage you to come along. And that is a request from uh, next week's speaker due to the sensitivities of living in that particular part of the world and being a Freemason. And I think Brother Chris touched on that with uh, the views of the Japanese uh, towards Freemasonry. So uh, you can understand why we won't be recording next week, Brian. Uh, so I do encourage you to, to come along next Tuesday at 7 o'clock. With that, Brian, please feel free to... Uh, oh, we've maybe got one more comment. Uh, Michael, we have a few ex-China lodges domiciled in the UK. Shanghai Tuscan meets in London. Daintree Lodge XYYWA meets in Botley. Uh, and Ian Kennedy, very thought-provoking. And on that, Bern... Uh, if I could just actually raise a point about this. Uh, in uh, places like uh, San Francisco and other seaports in America, they have also Chinese lodges with the square and compasses, but they're not Freemasons. They're Hong Chinese. They, uh, they established themselves in the 1900s when the Chinese were used for slave labor to help build railways in America. And they established these lodges and they wanted to be accepted. Uh, they heard about Freemasonry and they just put the, the square encompasses on, but they're actually Hong, Hongmen, they're called. <laughs> so it's slightly different from Freemasons. And that, that is one of the, the, the common photographs that gets shared from London with the Hongmen's Lodge. It's a, a red with the, the gold writing, yeah. I'm sure you've all seen it. Yeah. But, Brian, please feel free to unmute, say your thank yous to Brother Christopher Earnshaw and your good nights to each other. Thank you, Brian, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week.
Thank you very much. Yeah, superb, Chris. Late night for you, but thank you very much for staying up. Good night, sweet brother. Good night, guys. Absolutely superb. From a very learned man, might I add. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. Really enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent, Excellent, Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Gordon, and good night, brethren. Brother Christopher, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you very, very much. I'll give you five, Brian. Good night, Gordon. And four, because there's just about 12 weeks left. And three. And two, and we've got Iceland here as well. Christian, good to see you, sir. Uh, so we're, we're truly going. Romania 